situated as we are between uh, Canada Day and the 4th of July, uh, I would just encourage you to Google bald eagle versus Canada goose. And you can expect that you will not be surprised at what happened. So, um, they're just, there's, I mean, the, the goose didn't say sorry, <laughs> sorry, but if it could. Um, so, the, the deal here, uh, as you know, is we have two churches, separate churches meeting in the same facility, separate worship services doing the, the liturgy, the, the worship service according to the traditions of each church. Now, at New Hope, uh, what we do is we usually preach through a book of the Bible. Sometimes we'll do a, a series on a, some sort of theme, or, or um, sometimes we'll, we'll um, uh, do you know, uh, uh, portions from a book. But the idea is that, you know, on, on, on Sunday morning, we read the text that we're going to be talking about that day, and pretty much that's it, unless the people who are leading worship have some scripture that kind of is woven in. Our uh, friends at St. Hilda's in the Episcopal uh, Church do it differently. In the Episcopal uh, tradition, the Anglican tradition, generally speaking, um, has a habit of using what's called the lectionary. And each day you have lections, you have readings that uh, are prescribed for that day. There's a, a reading from the Old Testament, there's a reading from the New Testament, there is a psalm, and there is a reading from the Gospels. Every single Sunday, all four of those are prescribed, and all four of those are to be read in the service, which presents a little bit of a challenge sometimes when... Um, the sermon series we have is on 1 Corinthians, and sometimes the lections that are appointed for that day at St. Hilda's don't really seem to have a whole lot to do with the text. You know, usually, the churches that use the lectionary, the sermon is based on the texts that were selected for that day. It doesn't always work. Today, though, today... Some of the uh, lections that are prescribed, specifically the Old Testament reading and the Gospel, are perfect setups for this passage in 1 Corinthians. At the end of Isaiah's prophecy, very end in chapter 66, when Isaiah and everybody reading him are getting sick of Isaiah, Isaiah says this, Rejoice with Jerusalem, and be glad for her, all you who love her. Rejoice greatly with her, all you who mourn over her. For you will nurse and be satisfied at her comforting breasts. You will drink deeply and delight in her overflowing abundance. For this is what Yahweh says. I will extend peace to her like a river and the wealth of nations like a flooding stream. You'll nurse and be carried on her arm and dandled on her knees. As a mother comforts her child, so will I comfort you. And you will be comforted over Jerusalem. When you see this, your heart will rejoice and you'll flourish like grass. The hand of Yahweh will be made known to his servants. 
Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that just a, a wonderful picture of, of restoration? This is, you know, this, Isaiah is bringing this to a community that was, was exiled, was, was removed from their own land, was deprived of not only uh, property, many of them lost their lives, or deprived of their liberty. And he's giving this image of them once again dwelling in the land in, in peace, in security, being blessed. When you see this, he says, your heart will rejoice and you will flourish like grass. The hand of Yahweh will be made known to his servants. But his fury will be shown to his foes. See, Yahweh is coming with fire and his chariots are like a whirlwind. He will bring down his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For with fire and with his sword, Yahweh will execute judgment upon all men, and many will be those slain by Yahweh. Somehow you don't see a lot of magnets at the Christian bookstore with those verses on them, do you? You know, there's over three dozen verses in the Bible that talk about the fear of God or the fear of the Lord. Not a single one of them indicates that it's a bad idea. Not a single one suggests that there is something untoward or unsophisticated, something weak or primitive about fearing the Lord. Indeed, we read the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's fools who despise knowledge and understanding. So in 1 Corinthians, in our passage, when Paul says in verses 16 and 17, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit lives in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is sacred and that temple you are. When we read that, we need to realize this is not at all out of character. If your picture of Jesus is as a Canadian in a bathrobe, no offense, you're missing out on who he really is. Let's try to come to this at a run. Starting at the beginning of chapter 3, Paul says, Brothers, I couldn't address you as spiritual, but as worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, because you weren't ready for it yet. Indeed, you're still not ready. You're still worldly, for since there's jealousy and quarreling among you, doesn't that prove that you're just worldly? Aren't you acting like ordinary human beings? When one says, well, I follow Paul, and another, I'm on team Apollos, aren't you acting just like ordinary, boring, corrupt, wicked, vain human beings? See, Paul's writing to this church in Corinth that thinks very, very highly of themselves. I mean, the, the, the church at Corinth 
was full of folks who thought that they really had it all together. They, they belonged in remedial summer math, but they thought they were the gifted class spiritually. They thought themselves to be wise. They thought themselves to be spiritual. But in fact, they were acting like complete jerks to each other. And to Paul, for that matter. Paul, who had planted this church, found it a tremendously frustrating thing to deal with them. Not least because after Paul left, having planted it, and after this other servant, Apollos, who came and did some teaching and helped to further build the church after he moved on, now Paul is getting reports that there are all these factions developing within the church. People are choosing teams rather than the church being unified, rather than the church being made more holy, rather than the church being faithful ambassadors of Christ and showing their neighbors what it looks like when God's people live together in harmony, they're doing precisely the opposite of everything they're supposed to be doing. Paul makes it clear. He says, look, what is Paul? What is Apollos? What's Paul? We're, we're, we're just slaves. We're servants. The, we happen to be the servants through whom you came to believe, but we were just doing the tasks that God appointed to us. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God's the one who made it grow. And you've you got to get this straight, folks. It's, it, neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything. You, you shouldn't be thinking, well, I'm, I'm on team Paul because he's the one who established this church. We should set it up as, you know, Paul Memorial Church in Corinth. And you shouldn't likewise say, well, I, I really like Apollos. I mean, Paul, yeah, he did some stuff back then, but now Apollos is here, and he's much, much better looking and a much better teacher, and, and, and we, should, we should follow him. Paul's like, look, we're both on the same team. Neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who's the one who actually makes stuff grow. And the one who plants, the one who waters, they, they're, they're all one in purpose. Each is going to be rewarded according to his labor. But, but we're just co-workers. We're just co-workers in God's company. We're co-workers in God's field. And that's what you are. You're God's field. We're working. And then Paul transitions this metaphor from the field to a building. He says, you're God's field, you're God's building. And, you know, speaking of buildings, by the grace God has given me, Paul says, I, I laid a foundation as an expert builder is probably what your translation has. Actually, as a wise builder is a better way. There implicitly, Paul's kind of giving, getting a little dig at the Corinthians who thinks themselves as wise. He says, you know, I'm, I'm the wise builder after all. Somebody else is building on the foundation, that's perfectly fine, that's great. I laid the foundation, someone else is building it. But each one should be careful how he builds. See, no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid. The foundation, of course, is Jesus Christ. You may know that him, the church is one foundation, is Jesus Christ her Lord. 
The Bible quotes a lot of hymns. Nobody can lay any other foundation other than Jesus Christ. There's no, no point in, in building a church on anything else. It's not going to last. But if anyone builds on this foundation, and who would be the ones building? The answer is not Jesus. The ones building would be the leaders in Corinth, the leaders in the church in Corinth who are trying to further develop this church. Anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, marble, wood, hay, or straw, that work is going to be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire. And fire will test the quality of each one's work. If what he's built survives, he'll receive his reward. If it's burned up, he'll suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. This passage is not, as you may often hear it, preached. This passage is not about eternal salvation. This is not about eternal security. Paul's point here is not to say that whatever we do, it'll get burned up and tested in the fire, but either way, we get saved. That's not what Paul's talking about here. It's also, he's also not talking about purgatory, by the way. So if any of you kind of learned that uh, in Catholic school, I'm sorry. That's not what this is about either. Paul's not talking about individuals and their work. He's talking about the church. He's talking about the establishment of the church, specifically the establishment of this congregation in Corinth. And he says when the day comes that the work of building this church is tested, when everybody who has had a role in building this church, and that would be everybody incidentally, we're all ministers, when that day comes, then the quality of that work will be tested doesn't mean that the individual people involved have their salvation at stake. He says he's going to, he himself will be saved as only one, but only as one escaping through the flames. But that's not Paul's point. Paul's point has to do with the quality of the work done in building this church. Because don't you know, Paul says, that you yourselves are God's temple. And that God's Spirit lives in you. If the temple of God anyone destroys, destroy him, God will. For the temple of God is holy. Which temple you are. Sorry if you take the Greek literally, God sounds like Yoda. But the point is, there's a lot at stake here, isn't there? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy. And you are that temple. The gospel passage today is in Luke's gospel, chapter 10. Tells the story of Jesus sending out the 70 or 72, depending on the manuscript you're looking at. Sends them out two by two. 
ahead to every town and place where he was about to go. And, and he says, look, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. So ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Go, I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. Don't take a purse or bag or sandals. Don't greet anyone on the road. You're on a mission. When you enter a house, first say peace to this house. And if a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. But if not, it'll return to you. Stay in that house, eating and drinking whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Don't move around from house to house. And when you enter a town and you're welcome to eat what is set before you, heal the sick who are there. Tell them the kingdom of God is near you. But when you enter a town and are not welcomed, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that sticks to our feet, we wipe off against you. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God is near. Whether the folks you're telling the kingdom of God is near, believe it or not, whether they see it or not, whether they receive it or not, it is near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you and you, Capernaum. Will you be lifted up to the skies? No, you'll go down to the depths. Because here's the deal, Jesus says. The one who listens to you listens to me. The one who rejects you, they're not really rejecting you. They're rejecting me. If they reject me, they're rejecting the one who sent me. These are serious, serious declarations of judgment. I'm sure you remember the story of Sodom where Lot and his family entered the, the home where they were staying and then the, it turned out that, that the people of the town wanted to drag them out and to abuse them. God got them out of there. He utterly destroyed the cities of the plains, saying that it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for you is like saying you're going to be a worse team than the Cleveland Browns. When when he says, "Woe to you, Chorus, and woe to you, Bethsaida," these are cities of Galilee. These are cities in Judea and Samaria. These are the the very places where where. Yahweh should have been worshipped and where His Messiah should have been welcomed and awaited and received gladly. But instead, those miracles performed there didn't seem to catch a whole lot of attention. You know, if those miracles, Jesus said, if, if, if those miracles had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, these, these Gentile towns, they would have repented would have been like Nineveh. Remember, Jonah goes to Nineveh. Jonah's raring to go with his message of judgment. He goes and he tells the folks, and what do they do? They repent. Jonah's terribly disappointed. He wanted to watch the fireworks. He wanted to watch them get destroyed. Instead, they all repent. Well, likewise, Jesus, these pagan towns, Tyre and Sidon, they would have, they would have repented if, if they had seen these miracles that 
you, Chorazin and Bethsaida, you guys don't seem to care anything about. Capernaum, you Capernaum, will you be lifted up to the skies? No. You're going to go down to Hades. And in particular, I should note that this judgment upon Capernaum is not simply an eschatological matter. We're not simply talking about judgment at the end of days. Look on the cover of your bulletin. The ugliest church in the world is over Peter's house in Capernaum. Somebody at some point decided it would be a good idea to take something that looks like a flying saucer and rest it over the ruins of an ancient church that we believe to be a site where where Peter lived. Remember, Peter lived there. Jesus shows up in Capernaum. Jesus meets Peter, says, follow me. He goes back to Peter's house. Peter's mother-in-law is there. She's sick. Jesus heals her. Peter follows him anyway. This, it's actually a lovely church inside, I should say. I mean, it really is, it's very nice. But it is absolutely an abomination. This thing is just awful. It's this octagonal flying saucer-like thing on these massive, huge concrete pillars right over the ruins of this city. So the fact is, yes, there is eschatological judgment. There is judgment at the end of time. And then there's the judgment that comes now. Whether it be having a flying saucer dropped over your town and called a church, or whether it's something else. When God says, Paul says here, well, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple? God's Spirit lives in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is sacred. It's holy. God has set it apart for a purpose. It's set apart to be his. Right? And, and the, the word he uses for temple here is, is naos. It's not just sort of like the, the whole temple complex, but this is the temple, the interior of the temple, the place where God is understood to dwell. You remember that in, in Torah when they build the tabernacle and the presence of God comes and it dwells in the tabernacle. You remember when Solomon dedicates the temple and the, the glorious presence of God comes in and, and fills the whole place. Remember those chilling chapters in Ezekiel, chapters 8 through 10, where the presence of God up and leaves the temple because the people have been using the temple not for worship of the one true God, but they have been engaged in idolatry and all kinds of detestable practices in the temple itself, in the holy temple itself. Don't you know, you yourselves are God's temple. Now, later on in 1 Corinthians, and don't get confused here, Paul's going to talk about the the body as a temple, talk about individual believers' bodies as temples of God. This is a different metaphor. He's saying, you all, you, the Corinthian church, you are a temple. You're God's temple. God's Spirit lives in you, even in you, even in you Corinthians with your rampant immorality, even you Corinthians who are off suing each other, even you Corinthians who 
are having worship services that are really all about you getting your worship on and having some sort of an ecstatic experience in a way that absolutely embarrasses people that, that know you. E- even you who are exercising your liberty in a way that undermines the holiness of your neighbor. Even you who have these factions who have set up teams within this tiny little church. I mean, the Corinthian church couldn't have been more than 200 people and very likely it was about the size of this. Can you imagine? bunch of different teams. Well, I'm on team BJ. I'm on team Wendy. Well, I'm on team Steve. Well, I'm on team Debbie. Well, I'm just, I'm on team Jesus. So that, that we're back with the rest of you. No. I, even this church with which Paul is having so many problems, with which he's so frustrated, this church is God's temple. God's spirit lives within it. And if anyone destroys that temple, if anyone undermines this church, if anyone tears it down by the way they live, by the way they treat other people, by teaching false things, God is not going to put up with that. Because God has set this church apart for a purpose. He set it apart to glorify Him. That's what you are. That's what you're there for. That's what you're supposed to be doing, Paul says. Even you. This message of judgment is not a popular one nowadays. Oftentimes, it seems like the only place you get strict declarations of judgment or from dietitians. But the fact is, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. It's foolish to despise knowledge and understanding. God is to be venerated. He is to be worshipped. He is to be adored. He is to be loved. But God is to be feared. Because if you get in the way of what God's doing, He will mess your stuff up. He may do it now. He may do it later. But He will. He will get His way. Don't get in His way. pray. Lord God, we pray that we would be people who are faithful to respect the unity and the integrity of your church. We pray that we would be people who cooperate with you as your fellow workers, not as people that get in your way. We pray that we would serve you faithfully with a holy fear. We pray that this would be to your glory, that this would be to the edification of your church, and this would be to the further incursion of your kingdom into enemy territory. All this we ask in the mighty name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.